I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi everyone, uh, welcome to uh, a conversation for the LRB um, with the wonderful Hanky Nelson about her new book, On Freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. Um, I'm Amelia Abraham, going to be interviewing Maggie today. We've met before, so it's nice to meet again. Absolutely. Um, and I'm, I really... I'll just say a few words of, well, actually, I should say first that we'll be doing questions uh, for the last 20 minutes, approximately. So I'll try and keep an eye on the time. And if you've got any questions, um, please just drop them in the Q&A box and we can put some of them to Maggie towards the end of the talk. Um, yeah, so I love this book on freedom. Some people, I guess, who are here will have read it and some won't. Um, there's so much to talk about and unpack. I've actually just read it for a second time and I'm still the gift that keeps giving. There's so much <laughs> to discuss. Um, but, you know, we'll try and keep it a little straightforward for people who haven't yet read it. But I urge you to. It's wonderful. It feels so timely. Um, I guess the topics you're talking about, um, well, freedom in itself as a topic is, is super interesting to talk about right now. Um, kind of been it's not for the first time, but again, newly co-opted by the right. Or I'm in I'm in Brussels right now, and in Europe there are so many populist parties with freedom in the title. You know, it's become this real rhetoric rhetoric of the right, freedom and fun. Um, so that's super interesting, and you discuss that. Um, and then in the first chapter, you talk about freedom and art and self-expression, uh, which I guess in this climate of cancel culture is really kind of on my mind and on a lot of our minds a lot of the time. Um, and then you move on in your second chapter to talking about sexual freedom and what that means um, and how perhaps not we might achieve it, but we might better move towards it. And then the third chapter for anyone who hasn't read the book yet is about addiction and subjectivity and substance abuse. And then the last chapter about climate change um, and how we kind of reconcile personal freedom with caring about the planet, I suppose. But all of that is a massive oversimplification. <laughs> um, so you could do it more justice in a little bit. Um, I wanted to start with just a couple of contextual questions about the book, and then you're going to read for us. Um, but to start with, yeah, I guess I remember that last time you were at the LRB, you were speaking with Olivia Lang, and you said, oh, I was going to write a book about freedom, and then I wrote The Argonauts. Um, so yeah, it would just be kind of good to hear what sort of iterations this book has taken and where it came from in terms of your writing practice? Yeah, well, thank you so much to um, the bookshop for having us and Amelia for doing this. And yeah, I, you're right. I, I, um, I finished a book of mine that was published in 2011 called The Art of Cruelty. And I found myself like at a, uh, a kind of a crossroads where I had another book I wanted to write that came directly out of that, which was about freedom um, and about constraint, because I felt like while I was writing about cruelty, this, keep doing this with my hands because it felt very spatial to me, like some kind of discourse about freedom and constraint and the ability to move and degrees of like domination or cruelty and the relationship to space felt really uh, like it had come up for me as a really big topic the end of that book. So I had I started compiling lots of notes on that topic. 
And I knew that I, having just finished a book on art, I thought, well, it would be more ambitious if I looked at this freedom and constraint thing um, in multiple spheres. So I kind of started thinking, what would that book look like? And then, and then I was also, uh, you know, uh, in the process of, you know, getting pregnant and having a baby and all the different variety of things happening in political climate around queer family making. And um, I was doing just kind of some occasional writing on that, on those topics, you know. And then at a certain point, that occasional writing looked like it could kind of cohere into some kind of book project as well. So I had this crossroads of like which to do next. So I did the Argonauts, which was obviously the latter thing I'm describing. And then that, and then that book just kind of took up a lot of time and space for the next few years after its publication, you know, which was great. Um, but I was always like, I want to get back to the other project that I have the files for. And then, as I say in this book, start, you know, when I finally kind of had cleared the cleared enough space to to get to work on this project, it was, you know, it was also a really different cultural moment than when I um, had first amassed my files. So um, uh, it was, uh, you know. Uh, it was the fall of the election in the United States or the lead up to it. And, you know, and then while I was writing it in the Trump era and, you know, it was a very, you know, and still is obviously for all kinds of reasons that we all know about, you know, ended up being a really uh, fraught and in some ways very constricted time to write, especially the final months in the pandemic. But that all, you know, of course, as one has to do, and, you know, was a curiosity in its own right to kind of um to and, and I never really had tried to write a book um you know I, I don't really like work that dates itself very quickly by talking about contemporaneous things it's not really my style so I also had to kind of figure out how to be in the moment but not feel like the book was about the moment alone you know yeah well I think you do that in the introduction so well when you really quite clearly say I wanted to write a book about freedom, one, in a way, to sort of hold ground, to kind of try and hold on to this term that's, sorry, I've had a strange notification, this term that's sort of like run away from us, like it kind of used to be a word that we really associated with, um, you know, perhaps civil rights or liberation movements, um, and as we, as I just said, you know, and as you talk about in the book, um, it's maybe been kind of co-opted a little bit, and then the the second reason you say you want to write the book um, is because you want to think about freedom as a practice rather than an event horizon. And I just love that so much because when I started reading on freedom, I had just read another book called The Right to Sex by Amiya Srinivasan. Um, and there's this just this one line in it where she's talking about a lecturer who is speaking to a group of feminists and he says, like, you all better start thinking about what you're going to do when you win. And it was just like the most simple line. And I was like, oh yeah, like maybe we don't always think about that enough. Like personally, I guess I'm quite engaged in, uh, you know, LGBT rights, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I have noticed, so particularly at um, London Trans and Intersex Pride, for instance, people using the term liberation a, a lot more again. Um, and this real, there's been some books come out recently with, the, with liberation in the title, like talking about trans liberation. Um, but I think, yeah, and perhaps we, we, we don't always interrogate what we mean when we say that. Um, and then I love this idea of, yeah, thinking about it as something we can do rather than something we can arrive at. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess maybe if you could say a little bit more about that and perhaps the, the David Graeber quote, which kind of motivates the book and how this kind of becomes the central point of exploration for the book. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you asked about that in that I think it's it's like it's tricky because even as the book, it uses this distinction, that, this line of Foucault's where he talked about, you know, moments of liberation, you know, being followed by practices of freedom. And I and I was really interested in that. And I think it's important. What's tricky is that even though the book is focused on what you're describing, like practices of freedom or like the morning after, you know, the revolution and that kind of thing. It, it isn't meant to say that moments of liberation, you know, don't don't matter, you know, and, and matter deeply, you know. So it's a it's like a I don't know if it's a dialectic, but it's you know they're they're in relation to each other. They're not like they're not like we only have one or without the other. You know, big things have to happen for for gestalt changes and for movement, and sometimes to you know literally overthrow dominant structures. So 
Um, but I think that I, at the same time, the book is not particularly, I mean, we were going to talk about this, but you know, the book is not, it's not a how-to or a, um, mm. about how to make political change, you know, it's, it's really focused somewhere else, which is that part of the practice of freedom that I'm interested in has to do with bearing all the contradictions of freedom and constraint and unfreedom that, that, that are inevitable, you know, in a human life and that not seeing all of them as, um, as a, a giant, you know, uh, buzzkill or disappointment, you know, or failure of a liberation project. And so I think mm -hmm. the book is really, uh, it's, it's more about making these four containers, these songs, like, um, these chapters for, for rolling around with like these very, some very difficult, uh, thorny and, and essentially unresolvable mm -hmm. knots about freedom. Yeah. It's not, um, not like if we clip here this knot we will then be free we just have to find the right scissors and find the right you know fulcrum like that's not it it's not really about that and so in that way the book you know for those people who would rather that you know they will not find it or probably most of my writing very satisfying and that is fine with me mm -hmm. um but as for the graber quote which i'm kind of like poking around but i kind of can't i can't quite find it while i'm also trying to talk but um uh oh here we go la, la, la. okay I said, in grappling with such questions, I have taken as my guide the words of anthropologist David Graeber, who wrote Impossibilities. Revolutionary action is not a form of self-sacrifice, a grim dedication to doing whatever it takes to achieve a future world of freedom. It is the defiant insistence on acting as if one is already free. And I'll just say, I say the pages that follow highlight figures who act this way as I believe the border between acting as if and actually being so to be blurry, if not illusory, and go wary of those who pretend to be able to police the difference. Um, and, and that just has to do with the kind of discourse about more common to political uh, registers about freedom when people like say in a Marxist discourse or something where you would talk about, you know, feeling free, being antithetical, maybe to actually being free, like in an Arendtian formulation, like like the inner freedom as she had it being kind of a booby prize for not having political rights that would make you actually free. Or in our more contemporary life being like, oh, you feel free when you're on the internet, but really you're just a tool. Or, oh, you feel free when you're driving yeah. in a car, but really you're just pumping gas into the atmosphere and like, you know, I think that that kind of false consciousness um, conversation can be really um, confusing um, because it continues to postpone. Like when we have real liberation, it won't have, it won't be compromised, it won't be pure. It won't have, it will be a tool with no blood on it. And I, and I don't, I, I don't, I don't see that happening <laughs> in our in our future. And so I am interested in setting up shop somewhere somewhere different. And also, last thing I'll just say about the Graeber quote is that a lot of the people I write about in the book, and it's obviously very heavily cited, as a lot of my works are, um, it's it's filled with artists and thinkers who've made me feel freer, and who, to me, have acted as if they were free, even if they themselves. And I make this point about Sarah Lucas, who. I have a quote from her where she says, making art is like being in prison and trying to get out with a nail file. Like that that an artist might feel like that and then the work might produce a feeling of freedom or permission for other people is really is really fascinating to me. And I think in some ways it it may be that we don't necessarily have to give each other like the example of our living freedom, but that we just do kind of the work we need and want to do and that and that we're not always in control of the of the sense of permission or, or space making it makes for other people but the work um is is phenomenal in that way you know that it can work like that yeah and i think you did a really good job now really of ex explaining where it is that you set up shop um, mm -hmm. you say you kind of tried to set up shop somewhere different and that a lot of people have done a very good job of writing about perhaps political freedom or freedom versus unfreedom. And I think also we, we probably wanted to make, make that clear that you're setting up shop somewhere else because, you know, of course we're sitting here having this conversation as two white Western women with very large degrees of freedom. Yeah. Um, and people will be watching this talk coming yeah. from um, various sort of degrees of freedom and unfreedom. Um, so there was a part that we sort of selected that just kind of reinforces or maybe explains a little more what you were just saying about 
your approach and how it's kind of the sideways approach to the topic of freedom. Okay, so well, you want me to read that now? Okay, okay. Yeah, so this is um, this is from the air induction, and this book is structured like with chapters, and they have these like I don't know if you guys can see. They just have these like little subheadings, and so this little subheading is called the knot, and the knot is like an image that is hers for me. But hang on a second. Am I still here? Okay. I don't know. I guess I'm here. All right. Um, all right. Okay, so this is the knot. Uh, no matter what cause you advocate, you must sell it in the language of freedom. Representative Dick Army of Texas, founder of Freedom Works, once said. Whatever my feelings about Dick Army, and I might add for those of you who don't know that Dick Army is a uh, well-known right-wing uh, Republican in the States. Whatever my feelings about Dick Army, I began this project presuming that his dictum was, in the United States, fated to remain pretty solid. By the time I sat down to write, however, it was the fall of 2016, and Army's dictum seemed to be swiftly unraveling. After years of freedom fries, freedom's never free, the Freedom Caucus, the rhetoric of freedom appeared momentarily in retreat, with proto-authoritarianism rushing into its place. In the run-up to the election, I spent more hours than I care to admit watching Trump's online supporters come up with new terms of despot endearment, such as the patriarch, the king, daddy, the godfather, the all-father, or my personal favorite, god-emperor Trump. And I'm not just talking about the 8chan crowd. After the election, the Republican National Committee sent out a Christmas tweet heralding the good news of a new king, an indication of all that was to come. Multiple word clouds have since confirmed Freedom, this is before the pandemic, freedom has scarcely to be found in Trump's speak, save in the cynical invocation of free speech deployed as a troll, or in Trump's ghastly iteration of freedom as impunity, i.e. when you're a star, you can do whatever you want. Even the administration's 2019 effort to brand natural gas as freedom gas sounded more like deliberate scatological farce than earnest ideological branding. Over the next few years, the airport kiosks had lit up with titles such as How Democracies Die, Fascism a Warning, On Tyranny, Surviving Autocracy, and The Road to Unfreedom. Wendy Brown's warning about an existential disappearance of freedom from the world felt newly corroborated, as did her worry that decades of privileging market freedoms over democratic ones may have led some to lose a longing for the freedom of self-governance and to develop a taste for unfreedom a desire for subjection even in its place. Such concerns many times brought to my mind James Baldwin's observation in The Fire Next Time, where he writes, I have met only a few people, and most of these were not Americans, who had any real desire to be free. Freedom is hard to bear. In such a climate, it was tempting to write a book that aimed to reorient us as to freedom's very value or to encourage myself and others to join the ranks of Baldwin's very few people with a real desire to be free. Such entreaties typically begin with a strong argument about what freedom is or ought to be, as in sociologist Avery Gordon's The Hawthorne Archives, Letters from the Utopian Margins, a collection described on its jacket as a fugitive space for the political consciousness of runaway slaves, war deserters, prison abolitionists, commoners, and other radicals. In the Hawthorne Archives, Gordon asserts, paraphrasing Tony Kane Bambara, that freedom is not the end of history or an elusive goal never achievable. It is not an ideal of rules detached from the people who make or live by them. And it is certainly not the right to own the economic, social, political, or cultural capital in order to dominate others and trade in their happiness in a monopolistic market. Freedom, Gordon writes, is the process by which you be Freedom is the process by which you develop a practice for being unavailable for servitude, end quote. I have been moved and edified by many such entreaties, but they are not in the end my style. The pages that follow do not diagnose the crisis of freedom and propose a means of fixing it or us, nor do they take political freedom as their main focus. Instead, they bear down on the felt complexities of the freedom drive in four distinct realms, art, sex, drugs, and climate. 
wherein the coexistence of freedom, care, and constraint seemed to me particularly thorny and acute. In each realm, I pay attention to the ways in which freedom appears knotted up with so-called unfreedom, producing marbled experiences of compulsion, discipline, possibility, and surrender. Because we tend often correctly to associate unfreedom with the presence of oppressive circumstances that we can and should work to change, it makes sense that we might instinctively treat the knot of freedom and unfreedom as a source of perfidy and pain. To expose how domination disguises itself as liberation, we become compelled to pull the strands of the knot apart, aiming to extricate, extricate the emancipatory from the oppressive. This is especially so when we are dealing with the link between slavery and freedom in Western history and thought, both the ways in which they develop together and have given each other meaning, and the ways in which white people have for centuries cannily deployed the discourse of freedom to delay, diminish, or deny it to others. This approach also makes sense if and when one's goal is to expose the economic ideologies that align freedom with the willingness to become a slave of capital. But if we allow ourselves to wander away, if only for a spell, from the exclusive task of exposing and condemning domination, we may find there is more to be found in the knot of freedom and unfreedom than a blueprint for past and present regimes of brutality. For it is here that sovereignty and self-abandon, subjectivity and subjection, autonomy and dependency, recreation and need, obligation and refusal, the supernatural and the sublunary commingle, sometimes ecstatically, sometimes catastrophically. It is here that we become disabused of the fantasy that all selves yearn only or even mostly for coherence, legibility, self-governance, agency, power, or even survival. Such a destabilizing may sound hip, but it can also be disquieting, depressing, and destructive. That is all part of the freedom drive too. If we take time to fathom it, we might find ourselves less trapped by freedom's myths and slogans, less stunned and dispirited by its paradoxes, and more alive to its challenges. All right, so that's that little section. Thank you. So, yeah, I suppose to move on to chapter one um, and just talk about that a little bit, because I guess uh, it's about, I don't know what the right word is, uphold or protect sort of art as a third space um, or expression. Um, and you kind of look at, I, I guess, this culture of, yeah, I don't want to use the term council culture, but I suppose censorship and how it has this quite, we, we're in a situation now that's quite reactionary. The term he uses, the cops in the head have metastasized into a chorus of disembodied strangers and how this can be quite inhibiting for artists. Um, I don't think I would call myself an artist, but I, just as a human, have mm -hmm. this sort of fear of being cancelled. <laughs> Um, that I think quite a lot of people have internalized and it can be quite sort of stifling. So you kind of try and navigate a way through that. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder, do you feel it? Do you sort of feel this sort of maybe pressure or fear from outside forces more than you did perhaps earlier in your career? Um, and also I'd love to hear a bit more about why how you think we can navigate our way through this. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't think that you're wrong, like in your in your take on the chapter, you know, I think that um you know for me uh when I was writing it, it, it really wasn't about cancel culture, which is a term I don't I don't use or yeah. embrace. <laughs> And I don't really talk about it that way, but that the chapter was more a reckoning, uh, in some ways kind of trying to offer a genealogy about uh, notions of what I called in the art of cruelty after Grant Kester, an, um, an, an orthopedic aesthetic about art. Like the, an orthopedic aesthetic means that like there's something wrong with us or the society that art can like set straight. Um, and that how that, is coupling right now, how the orthopedic aesthetic is kind of coupling right now with a discourse about care yeah. and um, and which is kind of sometimes gets opposed to like, you know, we shouldn't just have the freedom to express ourselves exactly as we want to. We should care for others as if like the care and the freedom 
are like the two forces that are in um, tension. And I didn't feel like that formulation like seemed to me the most fruitful. And so I wanted to spend some time figuring out what what archives of artistic freedom there were that weren't just kind of hackneyed individualist art for art's sake kind of um, like I wanted to kind of make a different archive of voices in and around artistic freedom. And I also wanted to spend some time kind of critically examining like the last decade or two of, um, of mobilization of the care discourse as it applies to the arts. So those are really big topics, but to me, that's what the chapter was mostly about. Um, and then there, there are some sections in it that, as you say, take up, um, you know, what you're describing as like the cops in the head, although the cops in the head, and it's important to note this, that the cops in the head um, is a phrase from Augusto Boal, who founded something called the Theater of the Oppressed. And I'll just read you this quote because it's so great. He says, um, you know, the cops might be in our heads, but the headquarters of the cops are in the external reality. It's necessary to locate both the cops and their headquarters. And so um, anyway, there's a kind of historical tradition of what he's talking about when he says cops in the head, which is different than how I'm mobilizing the term here. But I was interested in it um, just in this sense of like, um, uh, you know, just in this sense of, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't call it protection as much about the space for art as much as I would just say a kind of um, a kind of uh, giving space to remember some of the things that art um, yeah. can do, um, and that some of that has to do with discovery, self surprise, uh, the gnarly contents of our unconscious. I mean, like a lot of things that are going on with art that are not just um, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, marketplace of varying degrees of thumbs up, thumbs down, transgressive, not transgressive material, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, anyway, I'm not sure if that is helpful, but I think, you know, as to your more pointed question about, I mean, I don't, I mean, yes, of course, I feel what, what everybody feels being in this culture. And I think a lot of what I feel, and I feel this, you know, you know, charting like I'm 48, so like, and I published my first book in my mid 20s, and so like, you know, and like this, even when I published the Argonauts, the internet wasn't really what it was. You know, like it's, it's even changed like the six years since. So I can kind of chart in my own writing life, you know, what the introduction of the internet has done, and I can I can see how it's changed different books, receptions or different scenes of reception. So I mean, I feel like so of course I know all that and I kind of feel it. I mean, I I I generally don't think that the calls upon white people especially to to think harder and much more critically and much more, you know, deeply about um you know, the, the kind of especially kind of first emanations of like what are essentially kind of pathological expressions of, of whiteness. Like, I don't think there's anything about that discourse that I find like, uh, like I, I think that's utterly worthy activity, you know? Yeah. So I don't, I don't, which is partly why I don't really use the term cancel culture and stuff is that like, I, you yeah. know, I think a lot of that behavior, a lot, a lot of that call to self-examination and to uh, a more critical eye on like your role in the world and, and and why you're making what you're making. And I mean, it's also what I do as a teacher is to be like, okay, you made this, yeah. now let's talk about, you know, now let's get to step two and step three and step four. So I'm not like afraid of any of that. I do, however, think that, and as the chapter does talk about that, um, that, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, don't, and maybe this is controversial, I don't know. A lot of people I know don't feel good in the realms that they want to most feel good in. And it's not that the goal is feeling good, meaning that like there aren't, when things are unsettled or you lose power or when you're, like there are things that can make you feel bad that are, that are that justly should <laughs> be happening. So I'm not really saying that. I'm just talking yeah. about like, a general gestalt, like of participating in a kind of, in a pursuit like art. It's not ever gonna be one thing. It's not gonna be about feeling good, but it's about, but it is I think in part about constructing communities that like I say in this chapter, um, a lot of people go to to get away from what Eve Sedgwick called the like good dog, bad dog, obedient school um, yeah. approach to living. And so it is a chapter that aims to address um, that problem, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think I used, unfortunately, as it, I used the term cancel culture because I suppose, yeah, I, 
I exist sort of on the internet where that is the term mm. that is used. And I think reading the chapter was so helpful for me as someone who kind of witnesses whatever you want to call them, cancellations or otherwise, all the time sort of happening before me between mm -hmm. sort of people I know and stuff. It was really helpful to read this chapter and take mm -hmm. a step back. And I think what you said about um, how this sort of putting people in categories of good or bad or, mm -hmm. for instance, um, it sort of implies that there are people who are just entirely non-problematic and you say, you say I just don't I've never met that one of those people mm -hmm. um, and categorizing people in this way yeah good over here bad over here there's a kind of great great line when you say that sounds like a prison mm -hmm. and I found it really really helpful to kind of process a lot of what I'm witnessing online so mm -hmm. I mean I guess I would recommend that anyone who hasn't read it yet it's a good it's a different approach and it's really I suppose useful thinking about those things. In the beginning of the book that I quote from Judith Butler's new book about nonviolence, um, where uh, I'm trying to find it, but um, you know, basically, uh, basically the line is something like, I'll just paraphrase it if I can't find it, but you know, it has to do with um, what we're what we're doing when we take when we identify you know destructive aspects of human behavior and um identify them uh on other on other people who we then disidentify with and kind of name as the not me and i think that it's very difficult because movement making and um you know a lot of political life does have to do with claiming moral authority about the way that one thinks should, you know, should be or could be better. I mean, you've thought about this a lot, right? Um, but, you know, I remain really compelled by if the goal isn't like annihilating, <laughs> you know, uh, if it's not at the point yet, which some people feel it is, but if, but if you don't feel like it's at the point yet where you're like literally in a war, you know, <laughs> um, then asking questions about how to proceed without that kind of not meing i think are really useful to think about in movements you know and and but the book is really about the book is not about movements so that's kind of a uh, but it, but it but it is involved but it does involve especially in the sex chapter and stuff in climate yeah uh it, it kind of does touch on ways to think about proceeding forward that don't um that don't make a claim on all ethical goodness being on, uh, held in one place, on one yeah. side. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, that's a good moment to talk about the, the chapter on sex, sexuality, mm -hmm. because I guess it's really clear when you're reading it, how it does that. Um, and yeah, you write, I absolutely loved reading this chapter so, so, so much. I'm so um, yeah, I suppose you talk about how um, in the, in the Me Too movement, there isn't much space perhaps to talk about desire. And you also talk about how, um, I suppose, Again, I don't want to kind of be reductive, but what, mm -hmm. what, what queer people who inspired you or queer people whose art you ingested or whose literature you read helped you rethink, um, yeah, sexuality, I suppose. And mm -hmm. I guess this, this distinction, not a distinction, this idea of the, how we can simultaneously have freedom to, so mm -hmm. to freedom to enact our desire, but also freedom from, so, perhaps freedom from harm. Um, maybe if you could just expand on that and also perhaps talk about some of who those people are and, mm -hmm. and how they taught you that. 
because it's really my favorite part of the book. Well, I'm glad. I'm really glad because you thought about this so much. So it's meaningful to me if it was um, enjoyable for you. Yeah, I think that that freedom from freedom to is really thorny about sex uh, because, you know, as we all live and wherever everyone in the 167 attendees in different places around the world, you know, every different situation, you're also you're going to have a particular set of cultural or juridical um, strictures that 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 define what um you know what your reproductive freedom rights are what kinds of sex are illegal and which ones are not you know all of our countries will have different ages of consent they'll have different uh social you know mores that so there are all kinds of things that um and that so in some ways the freedom from it's not the easy part because the fight against you know like the anti-abortionist forces and stuff is like fierce and real but it may be easier, I guess, I don't know, I'm trying this on, I'm not sure if I believe this, but I think it may be easier psychologically at times because it, um, freedom too, um, especially, you know, for women, uh, for, for, for whom the expression, the kind of like living in a sexual subjectivity that desires is still not actually a very commonly <laughs> accepted and normalized and like, ex you know, just, um, circulating fact, I think that it, there, it's, it's a really big can of worms to, to start thinking about, like, also because freedom too, it doesn't just mean like, like anything about freedom. It's not just individual, it's freedom to do things with other people. So there's like a, there's a kind of conceptual, um, you know, interest about sex is that like you're not just wanting to be like oh i want to be free to be able to do this on you or to you it's like you're doing you're doing something together right so you're immediately um all kinds of uh people's desires are going to be mixing up with each other and then i think that you know the the queer part in a way and it's also a feminist part but i think in some ways queers maybe have made a little bit more uh and maybe covered a little bit more ground with it <laughs> because of all of the work on queer shame and because of the AIDS era and then and the, and the pressure that that put on queers to assert the right to desire um, in the face of people who wanted to put people in camps or brand their you know buttocks or all kinds of the things that were going on in that time, um, I think that a freedom to desire uh, will always engage mechanisms of shame because, as I say in the book, you know desire is always at risk of being disappointed or being not met or being met partially. And um, that, you know, Wayne Kustenbaum, a writer whom I love, you know, you know, once said something like, like, you know, I wear my shame as my badge, you know, and like that, and that kind of shame as your badge is something that I feel like a lot of queers taught each other how to do, you know, it doesn't mean you dispense with the shame. It means that you know what's going on and you see it and you know it and you try and do something different with it, you know. Um, and I think that um, I think that that is a kind of portal or entry point into like sexual subjectivity and a freedom too. And so, yeah, the chapter spends some time talking about the people who showed me um, when I was coming up that there could be a different way than what, you know, the, the doxa to use, you know, Roland Barthes phrase, you know, had on offer, you know. Mm. And I think what you also do really nicely there is you talk about when it gets complicated between freedom freedom to and freedom from um in terms of i suppose when our desires kind of become quite dangerous or risky and i think there is a lot of conversation about that within perhaps queer literature or queer writing um but i suppose within the tradition of feminist writing i personally um mm -hmm. I think there's a little less so, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I guess I definitely felt seen as well when you kind of talk about um, how young women, we can often put ourselves, when we're younger, put ourselves in all now sort of quite dangerous situations to sort of almost feel free, um, mm -hmm. to feel like we are free to do that. Like something I used to do so much when I was younger is just walk home drunk in the middle of the night across the whole of London alone, just to feel like I could. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you were kind of 
speaking. I, th I felt it felt very nice to read someone mm -hmm. talking about that. It's funny that you mentioned that about your walking home through London drunk, just because in, in an earlier book of mine, The Red Parts, I, I, I write about precisely that. I have a kind of like a scene where I've been drinking and I'm like laying down on these um, railroad tracks. There's no train coming. It's not like that. It was just like kind of, I wasn't like laying out like a, you know, damsel in distress. I was just like hanging out down there <laughs> to go home. And, but, but, but yet, because that book was about the murder of my aunt and about the murder of my aunt who was murdered while she was on the road or travel, you know, hitchhiking. Um, and the place where I was while I was walking home, I knew because I had studied her, that some murders that hers were associated with, um, that I was near where one of those girls had been deposited. Uh, and anyway, the whole point is that like I wrote that scene and it was really fascinating to me because after I wrote the scene and I intentionally ended the scene by saying, you know, I thought about, you know, this girl, I thought about my aunt, I thought about the night, I thought about these railroad tracks. And I said, and I noticed kind of like how beautiful it was out, you know, like the light flickering on the tracks. And it was really like, that was, that was, that was just like the gesture, you know, but a lot of people, <laughs> After reading that book, like, I really can't mention how many people said to me, I was so worried about you. Like, when I read that scene, you know, I was so worried. Like, are you okay? You know, were you okay? You know, all this stuff, you know, and it was really, um, yeah, it just was, um, it was interesting to me to, to, to see how that scene mobilized a kind of well-meaning paternalism. Yeah. As if I wasn't, um, you know, like, yeah, as if I wasn't kind of marshalling what I was doing intentionally, you know. I think sometimes I've been compelled to do things like that just to sort of defiantly exercise some freedom as, as people yeah, you know, I mean, One second, I just got a message that I have to uh, plug in my machine, which I should have done, but I'm going to do that right now. But um, yeah, I mean, it's funny. I once had a teacher who was uh, like one of my only like non-feminist teachers, you know? And <laughs> when I asked her, what was the deal? Like, why was she so anti-feminist? She said, um, she was very spirited and individualistic. And, and she said, because the feminists are always telling me not to go be alone places. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get raped or hurt and I don't wanna hear it. You know what I mean? And I just thought, I mean, she was of a different generation, but it was very like, I don't know. I just really like. I thought. I thought. I've, I've thought about that like sentence that was yeah. me for like the last thirty years. I just thought it was really interesting, you know. And I thought like, what would, you know, what would a feminism look like that was not make someone have that reaction to it, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that comes up here for sure. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm conscious. There's so much to talk about in this book. Yeah. Um, we, we haven't moved on to even the next two chapters. Um, but I'm unfortunately. It's time to maybe let okay. everyone else have no a chance. No time for the climate. No time. No for time for climate. <laughs> Hopefully, someone will ask a question about the climate chapter, <laughs> or I, I would encourage everyone to, um, if you've read the book particularly and you have any questions about the final chapter, please ask them now. Um, can you see the questions, or can just I, I can, see the I questions? can see them actually. I don't know oh. if you want to pick or if you want me to pick things or whatnot, but. Um, yeah, why don't we? I mean, I really we, one about. Yeah, you pick. Is it well, is it the third one the, down? The one about subjection and being unavailable for servitude. Is that something you're thinking about? I don't know. I was interested in that one. Can you see yeah. that? Yeah, that's the one I thought you would pick. Let's do that one. <laughs> <laughs> Just for Let's... everybody else who wrote one, I didn't really read the other one. That was actually the first one that came up, so that's probably why I was here. But I think it was important because. Um, the question is, I was thinking about whether there is ever room for or what the stakes are of a pleasurable erotic relationship to our own unfreedoms. Can we form pleasurable attachments to our own subjugation and refuse those? What is the movement towards being unavailable for servitude? And I just wanted to say that, I mean, I probably can't answer like um, what the stakes are or uh, you know, or what one should do in regards to that super interesting question, you know, really briefly, but I will say that the chapter on sex spends quite a bit of time talking about um, uh, erotics of passivity, erotics of bottoming, erotics of, um, and, and how, um, 
and how I think that those are important elements of why some people go to sex and what they want out of it. And, and I think that, I mean, it can be codified into like an identity, but for a lot of people, it's not codified into an identity. It's just an erotics, you know? I think um, when it's recognized and avowed and kind of one notices what one's doing um, a little bit more or one can even begin to, then I think that the kind of, um, uh, the kind of fuzziness of like, I know I want something to happen to me, but I just don't know what, which is also fine. You don't have to know what you want to have happen to you, but the kind of like, um, and I guess I'm thinking more here, it doesn't have to be young people, but I think it is often young people because I think, you know, without um, years of experience uh, about what you might want to get away from or what you might be willing to bear, um, that, you know, things can be more chaotic, you know, um, in, in that time. But I think that awareness, you know, and, and developing awareness and language for it, which is what I feel like I tried to do in that chapter, too, was to give some language for the fact that um, it doesn't mean that you're self-destructive, uh, or, you know, it may mean you're working something out, but that we, but that, but it means you're human, and it means that sex is one human thing that we do that can move us, as Catherine Angel says, like, you know, toward difficulty and pain as much as towards pleasure and liberation, and that if we know that, then at least we're a little bit along the ways of understanding ourselves, you know. Um, do we have the top question from, from Rin or? Ryan, is that what you have? Yeah. yeah, go ahead. As a young queer person, I found that expressing my gender sexuality is often done in a way that's designed to clash with heteronormative culture. Would you say it's possible to be free in a queer identity if it is so inherently rooted in opposing something someone else? That is such a great question. I think it's so... I can't, I can't even see that question. So I'm, glad, I'm, glad, I'm glad you found it. Just came in on the top. Um, <laughs> I wish I could see you. I wish I could talk to you. This is so frustrating. I hate Zoom. Um, but that said, um, it's such a great question. And I think that you're so onto the problem of like, uh, that, you know, one thing that like, you know, oppression or discrimination or, you know, othering does is that it, it, it makes something, uh, you know, kind of, um, develop or even encrust around a reactionary stance to something else, you know, so you'll get like, you know, straight people are monogamous, queers are polyamorous, you know, straight people want to get married and live together forever and have babies, queer people don't want to do any of those things, you know, and all these things, I mean, I think the last, you know, I mean, we're in the middle of a great time where we don't know where it's heading, but where a lot of people have been worried about normativity, homonormativity, they've been worried about, you know, um, foreclosing of, of imaginative possibilities. People have been really worried, and I think, you know, we need to put a little, we need to allow for each other to, to, to explore ourselves and what feels right for us without putting um, names like this is the radical or this is, you know, the most, this is the queerest or this is the whatever, you know, like, because as you say, the content of that is entirely, entirely reactionary in certain ways. So I think, um, I think we're just going to keep going, you know, and I think that I don't think any, there's no control group where, where we know what free sexuality is developed apart from cultural context. And there never will be so long as humans live together, you know, I, I, I think that we know, however, and I list them at one point in the book, I think we know some of the main things that, um, oppress, police, discipline, jail, mutilate, um, you name it, queers, and and inhibit life for people who feel heterosexual. And I think we know I think we know enough about those things to fight against them without having to worry too much about the about other stuff. So, all right. Amelia, do you want to pick anything or you want me to keep looking? Well somebody said that they would like to um, someone would like you to speak about the climate chapter section and I think that's a very a very good idea um, okay, I'm fascinated to hear you talk about this well how much time is there I mean uh, it's a it's a long chapter as all these are it seemed really obvious to me when I first started writing I mean researching that I would have to write 
like a chapter on the climate because it's like the most um to me like urgent thing and pressing on my mind um, you know a lot of the time and so um and it the the kind of um well two things seem really obvious to me one like the staleness of our and the staleness and like the tight grasping notions of freedom that were like inhibiting um decarbonizing are, are, are just um i mean they're 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 enraging but they're also just saddening you know because i think um so i was really interested in like you know kind of getting at what that what that grasping was and how we're going to have to like let go um of of not just you know whatever like incessant just tra travel and hot and hamburgers and stuff but also like a a kind of notion of one kind of freedom that we've developed you know primarily over the past arguably but you know 250 years you know which is actually when the chapter as the chapter notes after chakrabarti's famous essay on this subject you know that same 250 years has been the same 250 years that um we've developed like that humans have developed the most discourse on human freedom at any than like at any other kind of time really that we know of you know um especially in western philosophy so there's a kind of sense that these things have gone together like our that fossil fuel use and the development of a discourse of freedom have gone together and that's going to take a lot of extrication so um so i was really interested in in all that and the deep challenge that chakrabarti kind of lays out um in that essay um and i was also really interested in um you know uh i just want to be clear about this just because i feel like i've it, i feel like it's kind of a misunderstanding like to, this chapter focuses on a lot of emotional emotions that the climate change you know produces in us um and it wagers that some of those feelings are impediments to um signing on to forms of collective action because we feel so impotent and upset and threatened um, or in denial. Um, that doesn't mean that I think we have to sort out like a, do like a long, heavy slog with like you know therapists and each other of our emotional life before we can uh, agitate and advocate for rapid decarbonization. Now, like I utterly don't think that this is like a trade. The chapter focuses on uh, the emotional place because um, it's the contribution I thought I could make to the conversation that um that there are plenty of climate activists making a different contribution and i felt as though the people i talked to even very smart caring people we all kind of walk around the day going like oh my god can't talk about that oh my god please don't bring that up oh my god whatever like and because we're overwhelmed you know and i kind of wanted to just go through the overwhelm myself and kind of write out the record of it of everything i'd found through it on the on the chance that it might be helpful to somebody else reading it you know well, I found it hugely helpful and also on on an in the way it talks about emotions, but also in the, the way it does fit forward. If you haven't done a huge, huge, huge amount of reading on climate, I think it's also quite helpful in the way it distills down certain things you hear thrown around or certain arguments you hear made. Um, right. I guess this I, I, I love that for anyone who hasn't read it, that you kind of talk about the the language of reproductive, the idea of reproductive mm -hmm. futurism and you know, I've definitely heard people say maybe three feelings of panic, like, well, maybe we just deserve to go extinct. And mm -hmm. the way that you kind of unpick that is really, really helpful um, mm -hmm. and really hopeful, I think, as well. Yeah, I mean, I think what maybe what Amelia is referring to that people were kind of talking about is like, you know, climate, you know, nihilism is like an understandable emotional response to something you don't feel able to stop and that you're frightened of like that makes all the sense in the world but the kind of um the kind of throwing up your hands about it um like you're saying about like well you know hey humans we've had our day or whatever you know but i'm spending some time as other people are spending some time trying to call people back to the idea that like as i say at one point you know, by the time you fin finish this paragraph you know i can't remember the number but you know a certain number of babies will have been born on the planet who weren't born when you started this paragraph and um they are here too you know there other species are here too like their 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 climate will fall on all of us but it will also fall upon those who have the least means to protect themselves Will fall upon them the hardest and so there's a lot of reasons 
to um, stave off that apocalypse narrative because um, apocalypse is not going to be, uh, nor has it ever been, you know, uh, distributed justly. <laughs> and so there is a social justice element to caring um, that, that, that works against that kind of um, uh, throwing up your hands, you know. There's a question that comes nicely after this. So interested, and this might have to be our last one. Um, so interested in your invoking of the concept of riding the blind. Seems so generative as a mode of a kind of simultaneous agency and surrender for both art making and responding to culture. I wonder if you could comment more on its value, value to you. So the riding the blind thing is just stolen from Fred Moten and Stefano Harney's um, The Undercommons, which is a book that I've, you know, read and taught many, many times and that um, I kind of took up Harney and Moten's um, wager, which was they throw out a lot of things like writing the blind, study, the surround, the undercommons, a lot of these big, a, a, a lot of concepts that they, um, that they invite people to like take on the road, you know? And I'm really attracted to that kind of mode of scholarship that says like, I'm gonna animate this word or this phrase, I'm gonna drive it around for a while, then I'm gonna like leave the car on the side of the road and like, maybe you wanna get in and take it for your ride or something, you know? And that was um, definitely the mode that I was working in with um, with this book and with that phrase in general. So the phrase is from them and, and, um, and that, as I say in the book, Riding the Blinds um, is taken, sorry, I'm like looking for the part where um, uh, it says, um, so Moten and Harney described this notion of the undercommons or the surround as the first freight we hopped. After that, Moten says, we started riding the blinds. Riding the blinds is the hobo practice of riding between cars on a moving freight train, so as to evade capture by the train crew or police. The phrase appears often in the blues. Um, and then I say, riding the blinds means you're out of the authority's sight. It also means you can't see where you're headed. Maybe you're on a runaway train heading for a concrete wall. Maybe you're heading for a future that's simply impossible to imagine from the present. Maybe life will be better at the next stop. Maybe it won't be. Seen from the future, might the human prove nothing but a pollinator of a machine civilization to come? Ask Mackian or <clears throat> Avanesian in their introduction to this book. What a thought. I won't live long enough to find out and neither will you. Um, so I guess, you know, yeah, there's like a, uh, there's a lot, I, I, read, I read that because there's a lot of layered notions to, to the concept. And I think what I like about it of the many things is that you can get really into it and be like, oh yeah, you know, we're hiding from the police. It's fugitive, it's escape. It's, you know, it's, it's um, all these things, but it also is like, you know, scary and horrifying to have no idea where one is going and to not know, um, you know, and, or, and to be on the run and to, um, and, and to just not know the whole story of like, like we don't know the human story. We don't know our story. We don't know how our lives are going to end. Um, we don't know how the lives of our loved ones are going to end. And all that is, is, is anxiety producing to say the least, you know, but it's also, you know, where we find ourselves and the climate crisis is in a way I kind of just, amplified version of that um, situation. And that's what that phrase is about. Amazing. Um, I think maybe let's pause there just because it's a really good question to end on. Um, and it's kind of the note that you choose to end on. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it makes it makes sense. Uh, but thank you so, so, so much. Amelia, thank you. Well, thank, thank, I urge everyone to buy the book. It's, it's you know, we couldn't get, through even half of what you talk about. So well, they're so good. I just am so sad that we're not together. And I just want to say that, you know, I really hope that there's like no capacity to witness or be in a conversation with people with our physical presence that I feel like we could communicate so much more um, uh, than we can do this way. And I just want to ex extend my regret, but also my gratitude for you all for keeping trying and for listening. So. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.